Psalm 62, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from this high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Megan. Let me pray for us, and we'll look at this psalm that was just read for us. Lord, we come to you now. We are mindful in your word as you teach us that the, the grass withers, the, f- the flower fades, and yet your word endures forever. We come now to this ancient, modern, and future word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces and reveals our own heart. We pray that you would do that now through the power of your spirit as we sit under this word, Psalm 62, and by your grace are shaped by it. In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 62, guys, it is about the calm confidence of God's people. The calm confidence of the people of God corporately and individual. Me, you, 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 and us together. Based in the character of God, and growing as we sort of map our life onto Psalm 62. That's a phrase we use often when we're coming to the Psalms, mapping our life onto it. Part of the reason we spend maybe a fifth of our year in the Psalms each year is because they really do form the backbone, the emotional and affectional backbone of the people of God in the Scripture. Psalms are referenced in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book. They're full of all kinds of uh, what we would call emotions, ups and downs, very honest about our life, and the invitation constantly in Psalms is to come and map your life onto that. What does that mean? This is the illustration I've given before, but it, it, I think it helps to show it. When our kids were young, we wanted to teach them to hit a baseball. So I grew up playing baseball. I love to play baseball. But you might say that hitting a baseball, a little round ball moving through the air with a skinny uh, cylindrical bat is one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing to do in sports. I don't mean to offend anybody, but try it. It's hard. That's why the, the best of the best do it three out of 10 times, right? That makes them the best ever. So it's a little bit of a tricky thing to teach a kid to hit a baseball. And the way we always did it was when they were young, uh, have mom pitch or an older sibling pitch. We didn't use baseballs. We had wiffle balls and a wiffle ball bat, right? So I would get 
you know, behind the child when they were young and have them stand on both of my feet, right? So I'm under them. Then I would they have them grab the bat the right way. And then I put one hand on their hand, the other hand on their hand, draping myself over them. And I just said, well, I want you to feel how I move toward this ball. You just go with me. Don't resist it. Don't try to do anything. Just feel how I'm moving. And somebody would pitch and I would, I would move. And it's kind of awkward, but like move. And I want them to feel, I want them to feel how my body moves, the, how the foot moves forward, how the hands stay back, how the front shoulder stays closed, all the things necessary for, for hitting a baseball or hitting a, hitting a pitched ball. I want them to feel the movement of my body at first. I just want them to, to feel that. And we do that one time, two times, a dozen times, a hundred times. And eventually they get that feel. They map their movement onto mine. And eventually I stop and they are doing that. And that's the movement of hitting a baseball. Now over time, they develop their own stance and their own swing. And so you can watch, a, you can go home this afternoon and watch a baseball game, major leagues. And all these guys have different swings. They're all individual to their own makeup and their own size and their own height and what works for them, but they're all basically the same pattern of swinging if they're at that level. There's the same movement of of weight distribution, hands got to be back, all that kind of stuff. They've mapped their movement onto a predictable way of hitting the ball, even though because of the context of their own life, it looks a little bit different from player to player to player. What we're talking about is mapping our affections, our soul, our emotional reality on to the movement of the Psalms. That is what the Psalms are about. And in Psalm 62, as we do that, I think we have here a predictable pathway of bringing a calm confidence to you and me, whatever the context of our life will be. And it will look different from person to person. We're not made, it's not a Procrustean bed, it just chops or stretches to make you look exactly the same, but the movement is the same as we map our life onto it. And it ends with this declaration which is where we're going to begin actually in verse 11. David ends by saying, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. That means really paying attention. It's reverberating in my life, spoken once, heard twice. That power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Power and steadfast love belong to God. If God was just power and not steadfast love, he would be harsh. He would be cold. He would be a judge, in some ways, the conception of God in Islam. Now, perhaps you wrestle with that misconception of God. I got it. Many people do. That is a misconception of God. He is a God of power and steadfast love. If he was only steadfast love and not power, he would be nice. He would be kind, but he would not be able to be involved in history and our life. And we would have no confidence that things would actually turn out okay for us today or tomorrow or anytime. And we would have the, mis, uh, the misunderstanding or the illusion that we're actually the foundation of our own life and it's up to us. Some of us struggle with that misconception about God. We tend to fall off the horse one way or the other. But what we have here is God is both powerful and full of steadfast love or covenant love. And when we hold those two things together, I think we have this incredible potential for a, what the Bible calls here, a quiet soul, a calm soul that flows out of this covenant relationship with God. On the opposite side of where your text is, I put an outline for today's sermon. And the lead idea is simply this, starting with that last, or verse 11 there, a covenant relationship with God 
provides opportunity for a quiet soul in a disquieted world. Covenant relationship with God provides opportunity for a quieted soul in a disquieted world. And quiet here in this passage doesn't mean not talking, and that may be part of it, but it means calm, anchored, an anchored soul. Not loud, not restless, in the middle of a world that says what you really need is just more or different than what you have. More or different, and by the way, there's a ton of things to be anxious over, a ton of things to be fearful over, and everything is uncertain. And that other group, whoever it is, is out to get you and ruin everything. And that's sort of the, the, the disquieted world we live in, the storm of all that communication, covenant relationship with God gives us an opportunity in the midst of all that to exist with a quiet soul. We'll explore what that is. Uh, there may be, in this, this outline here, I put you know, three questions here. What is a quiet soul? Why is a quiet soul necessary? And how do we get there? What's a quiet soul? Why is it necessary? And how is a quiet soul developed? And I intentionally say it's an opportunity for a quiet soul because the author here, David, is talking about an experiential reality that we can press into but don't have to. And some of us often do not. Some of us perhaps never do. And as a result, we are disquieted as a people or as persons. We don't have to. So maybe I just want to start by saying, if you took a personal assessment, what is the state of your quietness? I don't mean what you look like on the surface. A lot of people can fake it. But what's the state of your deep quietness and anchoredness? And if it's, you say, I think it's pretty quiet. I just, the follow-up question is, is that because the circumstances aren't too hard right now? Okay. If you don't have hard circumstances, praise God. I'm glad you don't. But we can sometimes mistake the calmness that comes from the ease of circumstances with a deeply anchored and calm and quiet soul. I'm not talking about comparing your experience to someone else's, your experience to mine, or our experience to David's, the author of the psalm. It's just an invitation from the Lord into this pathway of mapping our affections onto what we see here to lead to an increasingly quieted soul. Now, you know as well as I do in the Christian life, that's an iterative process because we're quiet for a while and then all things break loose and we have to get resettered. Fine, that's, how, that's what life is like. But what we see here, this movement that we're gonna embrace or this trace ourselves onto, just three big movements in this psalm and then we'll, we'll look at them in order. One, David looks at the reality of God and then he looks to his trouble and distress and then he looks to the reality of God again but in a different way. Looks at the reality of God, looks at his trouble and distress with some honesty, looks at the reality of God in a particular way that is different than the first time, and we'll get through those. Each of these steps, I think, is good, necessary, and important. And honestly, for me, Psalm 62 is probably been one of, if not the most practically helpful psalms in my life. Now, you might say, well, you don't seem that calm, and... Uh, you know, quieted, and I would just say, well, maybe you didn't know me before, right? So it's like, we're, on, we're in different spots in this journey, okay? Let's look at this. Psalm 62, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, for God alone my soul waits in silence, from him comes my salvation, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, 
I shall not be greatly shaken. So King David wrote the words to this psalm and either the, the tune of the chant or the choir leader named Jeduthun was, it was for him. He, he, he was the initial leader of this psalm. What is a quiet soul? What's a quiet soul? So two comments here to get us from the, the Hebrew in which this was originally written to the English in which we're reading it today. Very few Hebrew readers here, especially ancient Hebrew that's 3,000 years old. Um, right out of the gate, we have a little bit of a challenge with the word soul. Because when we hear the word soul in English, we've been very influenced by Greek philosophy that treats soul as that sort of immaterial part of our body that's part of us but not really part of us. That's not our physical body. It's just a spirity type of thing. However, so when you say soul, you think of like an immaterial part. That is not what the Hebrew mindset, especially with David, is talking about when it talks about this word soul. It's the Hebrew word nefesh. And essentially it just means life, my life. So that in Genesis 2, in the creation account, in the the account of God creating Adam, it says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a, and your, your English version says a living creature, but the man became a nephesh, a living thing. So nephesh is everything that makes living living and not dust, if you're a person. So it's, it's all of life. It's actually originally meant the word throat. You can see like, you know, if your nephesh gets closed off, there's a problem. So it, it's life. Uh, in the Old Testament, a murderer is called a, a nephesh slayer. A kidnapper is called a nephesh stealer or a nephesh thief. It means life. So what he begins to hear is say, for God alone, my life is silent, is silent. Now, the word alone there, too, I'm not going to do this for every single word, but these two are important. The word alone or only is, it actually shows up six times in this psalm. And it's translated alone most of the time in your English, and one time they just ignore it. Why? I don't know. What you need to know is it's at the beginning of each of those verses, each of those sentences in Hebrew, in order to privilege it. Alone, it's saying alone. If I had to retitle this sermon, I would call it uh, God alone instead of the quiet soul. Alone God. So literally what this is, the beginning says, alone for God, my soul is silent. Only God, my soul is silent for. Only him Only he is my rock and my salvation. Only him. So not something different and not him plus, but only. That's what it's saying. Silence here, as I said, or quiet means calm, not fretting, not agitated, not anxious, not flitting about, anchored, not whipped back and forth, not always longing for the next thing. It can sit still. In Psalm 131, the Lord uses the image of a quieted soul as a weaned child in the lap of his or her mother. So that's a a child who is calm, sitting with mom, and he or she knows that he's secure. Aware of the environment, perhaps, but secure in mom's lap. So David's saying here, my soul is secure with you only, Lord. He begins by confessing truth. By confessing what this is true, God, only you is the one for whom 
my life is made. And only in you do I find the calmness and wholeness for which I was created. And when my my mind and heart is settled there, then I have this experience. Only you, not something other than you, not you and something else, only you. And we saw these, some of these metaphors last week in Psalm 61. He is my rock, my fortress, my salvation. Only you, Lord, are my place of safety. Only you are my salvation, my, or my deliverance is really what that salvation there means. Any deliverance in my life from anything, and he's about to see us, a couple things. You have things in your life right now from, for which you are longing for deliverance from. If you're in Christ, the reality is only God is the author of that deliverance that's coming. He may use secondary means. He may use the instrumentality of different things or people or medicines, but it is authored and originates with him. Only God is the source of this wholeness, calm, quiet soul. Therefore, David says, I will not be greatly shaken. He's using psychological language here. Like, I won't be shaken. So what David is starting with here is a confession of the truth. He's confessing truth, stating truth out loud. God alone, my soul waits in silence. True, check. From him comes my salvation. Check. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Check, check, and check. Now he's doing this for himself, you know, all the, check the my's in there. My soul, he alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I won't be shaken, but he, it's a communal thing too because they're doing this psalm together. So individual and in community, we've already done this today. You all have done verse one and two in a different way. Most of you. Some of you maybe didn't do it as loud as you could have, but you were asked this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And most of us said something like, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Right, it's page eight of our worship booklet, the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. We confessed what was true together. We put it, we set it before us, this truth. David was doing this in verse one and two, but guys, we have even more light than David. We have so much more light than David. That word salvation in verse one and two is the Hebrew word uh, Yeshua. Yeshua. That may sound like a familiar word to you. It was the word the angel said to Mary in Luke one. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive and in your womb you will bear a son and you will call his name Yeshua. Jesus, salvation. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end. We have more, we see more than David did. We have more to lay before us, more to put before us. That's why we come to the communion table each week. Now we're not going there yet, but that's why we come to the communion table. You know, with visible words that we can taste and touch, we are setting the Lord before us as a confessional reality. This is my hope. This is the place of my calm. This is what quiets my soul. And only this is what I'm made for. So we set this before our heart and mind individually and in community. 
And we, so we think about it, putting it first in our field of vision. We make these confessions of faith. So this is why we want to read the scripture when we can. Meditate on it. Memorize it. This is part of the reason we print these bulletins so that you can take them home. And on a Tuesday morning, you're like, man, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm struggling with hope. What hope do I have today? You know, my hope is this, that I'm not my own but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to bring these things to us so they're accessible to us, so they're not so hard to find. If you asked me right now, if you came up to me before service and said, Roger, I got this thread that's unraveling. Do you have a pocket knife I could borrow? I would say, pocket knife. Do I even own a pocket knife? Yes, I have one. It's at home, what room is it in? What cabinet is it in? And what drawer is it in, in my cabinet? That's what I would say. Now, some of you here would not say that. In fact, if you were our drummer, Joe Erler, as I asked him before service, I just knew this would happen, just did a little experiment. I said, Joe, can I borrow a pocket knife? Here's what he did. He didn't think he did this. He just grabbed his right right pocket. Why? Because it's always there. Why does he have a pocket knife all the time? I don't know. I don't have a pocket knife all the time. If you asked me, Roger, can I borrow a pen? I would say, here it is. It's a Signo DX.38 blue black. Don't press too hard because it will ruin it. It's a very fine tip. But I always have a pen with me. We're all weird in our own ways, but these things are present with us so they're available to us and we don't have to think about them. If we're meditating on the word, if we're thinking about the word, if we're bringing these truths to our life and all heck breaks loose in our life, we need something we can say, it's right here. We don't want to have to go looking at some cabinet at home. We don't even know where it is to find these truths. The first thing David does in a quiet soul here is like we have, we make them accessible to us individually and corporately. That's why he says in Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now, David isn't in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle right beside the Ark of the Covenant. He's not even allowed there. What's he talking about? In my mind's eye, in my imagination, in my soul, I'm putting the reality of God right before me. And as long as he's right there, I will not be shaken. Not that there's not anything to shake me, but I won't be shaken because he's right there. Okay. I'm going to say something here that I'm going to run the risk of alienating some of you as soon as I say it. And it's not my intention. But I feel like I can't not say it given the clarity of the Psalms and the clarity of Jesus. Let me first start by saying, if you're in Christ, you are completely secure. You're more secure than you know, and we are more secure than we we can imagine. Because we're secured by another. We're secured by Jesus and our union with him because of the Holy Spirit of the living God who is bigger than you and bigger than me and stronger than all of us. You're secure. We are not secured in Jesus or in the love of the Father by the the level of quietness in our soul. We're not. Having said all that, when, friends, we are anxious, when we are fearful, fretting, or agitated, and we're not in the presence of immediate danger. Okay, and we're like adultish. It is almost always a sign that we are not trusting in the Lord in that moment. 
Now, I know this is hard for some of us because we say, I have anxiety, it's in me. It's not a substance. It's a pattern of the way we're reacting to the world. It may seem so, we may be so patterned in it, it seems natural, and I'm not saying it's not, it's, it's very easy, I get that, I get that. But what I want us to see here is over time and replacing patterns, there's a way through. I know that we live in a world that part of the disquieting of this world is said, it will say, you're disquieting and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way it is. And Psalm 62 just says, not so, not so. But I'm not saying there's nothing to be concerned about or that the goal is to feel nothing. David was concerned and he was honest. So this is why a quiet soul is needed. There really are challenges and threats. Let's look at verse three and four. David now, after looking at the Lord, now looks at the trouble in his environment. Uh, He has enemies and he's a person of high position. He's a king, he's got many competitors, many enemies. Look at verse three. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? David's really starting, he's feeling his human frailty here. He's like, I'm like a leaning wall. Literally, that's the word stretched. So it's like, you think of a brick wall. Maybe this is the case in your basement. If you have a cinder block basement, it begins to bow inward. That's a problem that you can't ignore. Eventually, it will become a worse problem, right? The, the, the soil is beginning to press on the wall and the, the, the wall is beginning to bow. David's like, this is what I feel like. There's pressure outside of me that's causing my structural integrity to weaken or like a tottering fence. Like I still look like I'm standing, but the next breath of wind might blow me over. I'm feeling my weakness and there's these enemies out here just killing me. I'm right on the verge of collapse. That's what David is saying. So he's not denying his weakness or the challenges in his environment or that he himself personally feels very lacking in resource. So the biblical ideal of maturity is not to say, look, I'm strong. Look at me, I'm good. I'm good. I'm strong in myself. I got it. I was, we were, my son Josh plays high school football. We went to the game on Friday. And uh, let's see, I'm not going to tell you which team. And it wasn't Josh I'm talking about. But um, so one of the cornerbacks, that's the person who covers the receiver. Sorry, it's a football illustration. But it's almost September. Um, so this kid is like, he must be a sophomore, freshman. He's like a, a buck 30 dripping wet. He's skinny, right, for a high school football player. And he gets beat on the pass route, and the receiver runs by him, and the quarterback uh, gets pressure on the throw and ends up underthrowing the ball. And though he's beat, he tips the ball out because the ball was underthrown. He knocks the ball down to the ground, and he gets up and does this. I mean, he's skinny. He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like flexing, you know? It's like, one, you have, don't do that. It looks really bad. You have no muscles. <laughs> and it was, he didn't point to the defensive end who put pressure on the quarterback to make him throw it. He didn't say, I'm thankful that I didn't get exposed. He just took the credit. He's like, look at me, I'm strong, right? That's not the picture of biblical maturity. Not saying, I've got this, I'm strong in myself. I want you to look at me. I'm gonna flex for you. David's aware that he's not, actually. Verse four, they only plan, and it's another only word, ach, again. Only they plan to thrust him down from his high position. He's talking about himself. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. He's like, these guys are deceptive and focused. 
Only, their only plan is to bring me down. So he's dealing with falsehood, relational conflict, lying. He doesn't even know what's happening. He says, I know they're out to get me, but I don't know how. He's stressed. And so this is, I think, part of the reason the Psalms are so instructive for us as people. Uh, he's not saying, I will feel nothing. I'm a robot. There is no problem out there. He's like, I feel it, and it's terrible. And it looks like for a moment, I'm not sure really what's happening here in David's psyche, but he has set the Lord before him, and then what's come into his immediate field of vision is all these problems. Uh, now, you may not have people trying to sabotage your career with intrigue and deception. Right? Now, maybe you do. Maybe you really have a tough work environment. I don't know. Um, but we all have threats to well-being in our life and distress in the context of our own life. And maybe not high-level assassins and intrigue, but it could be rumblings about your company being purchased and the ensuing downsizing that's happening. And you're like, wow, I didn't see that coming. What would I do if this or if that or if that? Maybe on Friday, you went to Quest Diagnostic and are waiting on lab results to come in on tomorrow. Like, man, I don't know. I hope it's not this, but I'm preparing for something else. Maybe it's a feeling of loneliness that makes you begin to think, maybe it's me. Maybe, maybe people actually just don't want to be around me. Could be a pattern of conflict with a spouse. You might be saying, is this a new normal? I, I don't know if I can live this way. We all have distress and threats in our environment. And they all run the risk of disquieting us. The solution isn't not to look at them and not to pretend that we're strong in themselves, but to see them clearly. There are plenty of reasons a quiet soul is necessary. And here's how it's developed. The baseline of the confessed truth, looking honestly at the distress in the environment, the enemies, the challenges, and then David does something very forceful here. This is super helpful to me. He talks to himself. He preaches to himself. Look at verse five. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So he's repeating the truth that was set before him, but with a twist. And it's very subtle. It's easy to miss. But in verse one, he makes a statement. Oh, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Check. I believe that as a doctrinal statement. For God alone, my soul is silent. Cool. But then he presses it on himself in verse five. For God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. It's like he backs himself in a corner and says, soul, I want you to listen to me. You stop talking, I'm gonna talk to you. In, this, in our circles here, we call this preaching the gospel to ourselves. Pressing it on ourselves. I'm not saying this is an easy thing, but this is a pattern we're invited into. In 2017, researchers at the University of Michigan did a study where they took volunteer students and they put you know, electrodes and hooked them up 
and they said, okay, broke them into two groups and said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to give a 10-minute talk to a group of people in five minutes. You have five minutes to prepare for this talk, and here's the subject. Now, for most people, talking in front of people is a fear-inducing reality, right? It's often we're said it's the top, you know, the top three fear, stress-inducing realities. So they all had that assignment. Five minutes, go. But they spent like 30 seconds coaching each of those groups. One group was coached, they were both coached to talk to themselves, do self-talk to get themselves prepared. One group was coached to say something like this, okay, I can do this. I've just hang in for a few minutes. I've been talking all my life. I have the same education as these, as these folks, probably. Uh, I'm the one in control of what I'm going to say. And they don't even know. That's group one. Group two was taught to say something like this, to talk to themselves in the third person. So for me, it would be like this. Roger, my name is Roger, if you're visiting. If you're not visiting, my name's still Roger. But my name is Roger Williams, just you need to know that. Roger, you can do this. Roger, you have to hang in there for a few minutes. And this is actually how I talk to myself instead of that. I say, Williams, you've been talking all your life. Williams, you are the one in control of what you're going to say, and the audience doesn't even know it, what they're, you're going to say. So talk to yourself in the third person. Two groups, talk to yourself in the first person, talk to yourself in the third person. What they found is that group two, those who spoke to themselves in the third person, had a significantly less emotional reactivity to their environment when they were speaking. The electrode showed, really what it showed was the, the neural pathway activity from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex was less active. So you're, you're, you didn't get hijacked and feel stressed as much when you had talked to yourself in the third person before doing that. Interesting. So in 2017, University of Michigan researchers declare something like, if you speak to yourself in the third person, it leads to significantly more calm. 3,000 years before that research study, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, for God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. He speaks to himself. He speaks to his life. In the third person. Why do the Michigan researchers find that? Because that's how God made us. Okay, go researchers, right? Or you could read the ancient text and see David speaking to himself in the third person, talking to his soul, commanding his soul, saying, soul, know this. Shh, 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 I'm talking now. Listen. On the back of your insert, I put this quote from Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor who became a well-known preacher, but he's always very aware of and concerned of the psychological realities going on in the person. And he wrote a book, he did a ser series of sermons on spiritual depression, which meant just like downness and lowness and lack of confidence in God's people. Lloyd-Jones writes this. This is on the back of your insert at the bottom, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, 
the psalmist's treatment was this. Now he's quoting Psalm 42, which has the same line in there. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. David does this here. Self, listen. Wait in silence for God alone. He is your refuge. How many times does that have to happen in our life? I know it's more than once. You know, this is the iterative process of walking with Jesus. What happened here, David began with this confession, God is my refuge. What interrupted that field of vision with all the issues, and he forcefully then takes the confession and puts it back in front. You may not feel like you can do that today. Friends, it is within your power to make the effort to do it. Just make the effort. It's okay. Now, here's a great thing. We're not alone in this. He turns and then he says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now, David begins to, after he's confident, he begins to talk to other people. But don't miss this. They're singing this in community. They're hearing David say that to them. We need one another also to forcefully communicate this gospel to us. Don't forget, Roger, God is a refuge to you. I need you to say that to me sometimes. Because when we're weakened, it's hard to keep that in our field of vision. On the very front of your insert, of your worship booklet here, I'll put a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his wonderful little book called Life Together. Uh, This is, uh, we would say, gendered language today because he's talking about men, but he was also talking about an underground seminary that only had men in it. So I didn't think it was worth it to change the the words. God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek him and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, a Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because he needs Jesus Christ. Here it is. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Sometimes it's super hard to preach the gospel to ourselves and we need one another to do it for us. That's how God has created us to be. He's created the Christian community to be this way. That's why lone ranger Christians tend to die on the vine. We're not created to be alone. We're created to be part of a community called a body, a church, where we speak the gospel to one another in our frailty and in our need because of our frailty and because of our need. At that, that point, he begins to see things more clearly. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. That's common folk like you and me. He's a king, right? They're but a breath, a vapor. Actually, it says this in the, in the Hebrew, only a breath are normal people. Those of high estate, like him, a king, are a delusion or a lie. He's got, he's got you know, he sees it clearly now. There's no high estate when it comes to comparing ourselves to the Lord. 
In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He's now seeing his, the enemies and the distresses for what they are because he's seeing them now through the lens of who God is in his fullness. And what is God? He says it again, verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You are powerful with covenant love and you will render it to a man according to his work. And there he's talking about the enemies again. That the very end he comes to say, I'm rooting my confidence and my stillness in who you are. You are powerful with steadfast love. And the reason we come to the communion table now, friends, is because this salvation, this Yeshua of God, took that power and that steadfast love and he submitted it to the cross for our sake. That you were held secure now in union with him. And from that position, held by him, can set the Lord ever before you in front of whatever is going on in your life today. So when we come to the table, and I would say that if you're in Christ, I want to invite you to this table, and you take the bread and the cup, I would encourage you to think about looking at your world on the other side of the bread and cup. Hold it up in front of your face and say, whatever else is in my world is going to be seen through the lens of this bread and this cup. Let me pray for us. I invite you to come to the table.